Good morning. Happy Lord's Day. Uh, first Lord's Day of September, is that right? It's a good day. Uh, so as we gather Lord's Day by Lord's Day to commemorate the resurrection of our Savior and be reminded of our heavenly reality and find hope and peace in Jesus, uh, let's give thanks to our God as we look into the idea of the covenant of works. Father, how we give thanks uh, that you have done all that is needed for our salvation, that you've also shown us how to live as the redeemed. And Father, you've given us firm promises that you will be faithful to bring us to our final end, that heaven will be our home, that you will be our God and we will be your people, and that we will rejoice in your presence. We pray, Father, you'd unlock the key to the scriptures by your spirit that we might see what Christ has done for us and we might rejoice in him and say, here am I, how can I serve? We love you and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're looking at uh, Shorter Catechism number 12 and uh, it's been a while since we've looked at the catechism. Um, as we open today, I wanna start with a question and this is a useful guiding question as we consider the concept of the covenant of works. Um, the question I want to ask is, what is wrong with humanity? The question is one that everybody asks, whether you are convinced of the authority of Scripture and you think God's thoughts after him, or whether you are going it on your own and trying to figure out the world based on the empirical evidence as you perceive it, people know there's something wrong with the world. Within the Christian tradition, there's two basic positions we're gonna look at today. Uh, point is, is all humans struggle with the question of what's the problem with humanity? Whether you're a philosopher, whether you're religious people, psychologists, scientists, and my favorite folks who get D's in social studies, all of us alike are want to pontificate, by the way, if you got D's, you're in good company, and I teach social studies, it's kind of funny. Um, the, uh, it, all of us alike want to pontificate about what the problem is, and all of us want to pontificate with imagined equal authority on this subject. The problem of evil is universal. Our explanations of it as a race vary. Christians, of course, of all varieties, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant, have all pointed to a fall. Yet there's two basic approaches to navigating uh, the why of the fall. One lands more in the field of nature and one lands more in the field of moral problems. So let's look at the first one, and I think I put this on your outline. That is ontological issues, issues related to being human, right? So for example, Catholics who absolutely affirm a historical fall, right, and that there's a moral problem, they agree with Protestants in that regard, they also have a little room for there's a problem with being human, right? Some of the rationale is that Adam is human. He's not God, right? There's a nature issue. And so, of course, early on, nature is required to be perfected by grace. Even before the fall, man needs grace as sort of gas to help him go along and become uh, confirmed in righteousness. And they'd be comfortable with that language as we are. Now, of course, as Protestants, and what we're looking at today with Shorter Catechism number 12, is we're looking at what we're gonna call the classical federal teaching of you know, classic Protestantism. 
the Westminster Standard certainly fall in this tradition. For Protestants of the Westminster variety and also the uh, Continental Reformed, we would hold that, look, before the fall, humanity is good, full stop, not lacking, not in need of grace, but rather good. Look at the creation week. After everything God's created, it says God says it was good, it was good, it was good. However, there is a probationary period, and both Catholics and Protestants agree upon this, and we both agree that, hey, man does fall. But I want to point out that there's no need for grace. So this is essential for us to stop for a second and look back to Shorter Catechism 10, which I taught, I think, in February of 2023. Shorter Catechism 10, which I published for you there, asks, how did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. Now, I just want to sort of revisit that for a second before we jump into Shorter Catechism 12. Think about that for a moment. Because of sin and the ugliness of human history, we never give the fact of man's beautiful creation much thought. Think about man mankind as they were first created, male and female, humanity and Adam and Eve, perfect, sinless, beautiful, declared by God to be good. There's no lack. There's no, you're spiritual, you're, you're flesh, flesh is bad, spirit's good. None of that sort of Greek philosophy crawls into there. No, that's foreign to the Hebrews. Adam and Eve were God's discussion partners and accurate reflectors of his glory. God calls Adam and Eve good, good in their being, good in their ethics, good in their intellect, good in their wills. There's nothing in the text in Genesis to suggest that there is anything lacking. The only not good that we see in the text is Adam being alone, and God provides, of course, Eve, and they provide mutual fellowship and benefit to each other, wherein humanity can now fulfill its image-bearing responsibilities. Due to the long history of a sin-cursed world and our own participation in it, we tend to have very low self-esteem as a race. We tend to have very low self-esteem as a race. Now hear me out. Before the fall into sin and misery, we had no reason to hang our heads low. In beloved, after glorification, there will be no reason to hold our heads low. We will see God as he is, and we will rejoice in him as our creator, redeemer, and king. There's no warrant to see Adam and Eve in need of supernatural grace to aid them in the garden. That's read into the text. There's nothing wrong with being human before the fall. Any idea of lack, any idea of necessary jump starts because they left the headlights on overnight is foreign to the text. Adam and Eve were not in need of grace as they were created. Everything about Adam and Eve is good. Now, you know, we, of course, uh, in our lives, we experience birth, we experience growth, education, parenting, being parented, whatever. And my understanding is I've experienced it, and some of you know this more. I heard a good quote from Walt earlier. He says, as you get closer to the end, what did you say, Walt? As you get closer to the end of life, it picks up speed, right? Um, and that's, you know, I, I can remember as a boy waiting at a stoplight, uh, and I, I told my Catholic mother, I, I said, Mom, I said, 
that's a long stoplight. And she gave me like these wonderful fiery eyes. Do not use the Lord's name in vain. And she's right, of course. But the point was, is time took forever. Little things seemed forever. Well, as, as right, our experience of time is weird. I just want to throw out for you guys from creation until the consummation, this is a very small blip in time for humanity, okay? And that's a hard one to grasp. Our personal lives and our personal issues are so overwhelming that it blinds us to the reality of life and heaven and eternity, right? And who knows how long, uh, you know, Adam and Eve were sinless in the garden. So I just figured I want to get that out right out of this jump start, okay? The Protestant doctrine of a good creation is there full, full speed. We've got to get in there, okay? Now, uh, so looking at Shorter Catechism 12, when we get into this covenant of works, uh, let's go ahead and read this responsively. On your worksheet, you've got uh, Shorter Catechism 12. I'll ask the question, you guys can respond. What special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created? When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. All right. Now, let's be open in the beginning here. There's been a fair deal of debate about the formulation of how to understand the covenant of works. Some have even charged that it's a misnomer. It's not a right label because the word covenant isn't found in Genesis 1 through 3. And it's true. You won't find the word covenant in Genesis 1 through 3. Ironically, it's usually these same people who point that out that argue for the presence of grace in the garden. And guess what other word isn't in Genesis 1 through 3? Grace. Now, that's sort of a petty game because let's be honest, one of the core doctrines of Christianity is the doctrine of the Trinity and you're not going to find that word in the text. However, our confession rightly says that we need to exercise good and necessary consequence, that we need to be good biblical theologians, that we need to look at the data, wrestle with it, and say, what does scripture teach holistically, okay? So there's uh, nothing to be won in terms of games about this or that is mentioned or not. So it's, uh, the question we want to start out with is this. Is it proper to label this a covenant when you look in Genesis 1 through 3 and there's no language of covenant? So first we're going to look at Hosea 6, 7. Uh, I'll spear you, eh, whatever. Uh, uh, this is, uh, it's key Adam, right? Adam. And then there's a preposition here, key, whatever key is, right? And there's also a, uh, a, a possible optional rendering, which is Adam, which is in, uh, in Adam, right? So there's a couple of ways in which we could perceive of this. This is a, uh, uh, what, what's the word? Uh, a minority rendering in the text. I forget, it's been a long time. Let's look at how the text has been taken, okay? There's basically four ways in which the text has been understood. This is from Hosea 6, 7. The traditional rendering for Hosea 6, 7, and I think this is coming from the ESV, says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, there they dealt faithlessly with me. Okay. So there's four ways in which this text has been interpreted. First one, like mankind, they've transgressed the covenant, okay? So they take Adam and they change it to mankind, sort of a plurality there. Now, if you take that view, where would mankind have broken a covenant all collectively in one? Well, it would have to be in the garden because that's where we are federally represented, right? Only in the garden could man have corporately broke the covenant. That's one possible reading, um, although it's not plural, unlikely. Second one, 
And this is leaning on this reading with this uh, alternate uh, reading with the different preposition, buh, bait, sorry. Um, the, uh, it's at Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. So they take this variant, that's the word I was looking for, bet, and uh, they take it so it could be in or at, right? So at Adam, they transgressed the covenant. And Joshua 3.16 says, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. So it's true, there is a city called Adam, and it is possible something happened at Adam, okay? Um, you know, this variant is, uh, it's unlikely, but it's a possibility, right? However, scripture is never clear anywhere in saying that any covenant was broken at Adam, okay? No, there's no covenant breaking at this city. It just, uh, it, it's a possible reading, depending on how you take the text. Third, as the ground they have transgressed the covenant, now we're getting really fanciful and we're adding letters, um, which just isn't there. So, uh, that's not a possibility. As the ground they've transgressed the covenant, right? Um, yeah. Text simply doesn't say that. The clearest reading is the traditional one that I'm guessing most of your Bibles have in Hosea 6-7. That is, they, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant, right? So we see here, and you know, for people that hold to the covenant of works, this is a classic proof text, you know, Hosea 6-7, that it's talking about there's some covenant in the garden, right? Like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Now, my, personally, my, my ax to grind, and my view is, for people who want to choose one of the first three choices, whether that be, uh, you know, uh, in Adam, like mankind, or uh, as the ground, um, the rationale here is it gives cover, right? It gives cover for a prior theological predilection. That is, I don't like the idea of the covenant of works. Well, I think the, uh, the traditional translation is spot on, okay? It's spot on. The text is clear. There's some kind of a covenant with Adam in the garden, and he broke it. Now, we shouldn't be surprised at the idea that God deals with Adam by means of a covenant, for he deals with all of his creation by means of covenant. Think about this, Jeremiah 33, 20 through 26. Uh, I was thinking of this verse this week. Did anybody see the amazing moon? both in the morning and at night. What a glorious testimony of God's faithfulness to his people, right? Jeremiah 33 says, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that the day and the night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David my servant may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus they've despised my people so that they're no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord. I have not established my covenant with the day and the night and the fixed order of the heaven and the earth. Then I will reflect. Now, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay. Point is, God says explicitly through the prophet Jeremiah that his relationship with the sun and the moon and the stars, morning and evening and all that is a covenantal relationship. 
it is not to be expected that if God makes covenant with beautiful, glorious luminaries, that the height of his creation, man created on the sixth day, is very likely created in covenant with our recreating and redeeming God. I suggest the answer is yes. Here we see God mentions his covenant with creation, particularly sun and moon as the light and star bearers. I'm sorry, sun and moon stars as light bearers. Where in the Bible do we see God talk about the sun and the moon and the stars as instruments of light? Of course, in Genesis 1, okay? So, you know, the idea of covenant is there all over in the creation account. Thus far, we've seen uh, that God made a covenant with Adam. And the question is, what sort of covenant is it? Catechism says it's a covenant of life, right? Covenant of life. Uh, yeah, here we go. Covenant of life. That's an important word. Um, you'll notice in your printout, I also printed for you the, uh, the language from the, the, the confession, right? Catechism says it's covenant of life, whereas Adam had to perfectly obey, and if he fails, he dies. The confession says it's a covenant of works. Confession says, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Now, these terms are good, and I'm going to argue for both covenant of life and covenant of works. They're not confused. In Genesis 2, there's no explicit mention of a promise of life, only the certainty of death if Adam breaks the covenant. So are we doing well then to speak of a covenant of life or works then? Well, yes, and there's many reasons. First, let's remember that God made Adam upright, completely righteous. God called him good. Children who aren't here, you'll remember this passage from VBS, Ecclesiastes 7.29. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Yeah. Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Adam had the law, so that's first, you know, God makes man upright. There's, yeah. Secondly, we're going to see that Adam had the law of God written in his being. We see this even to be true when we look at our fallen nature. You know the passage from Romans where it talks about people who don't have the law nonetheless have a conscience because the law is written on their hearts because they're made in God's image. Well, Romans 2, 14 through 15 says, For when Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So I want you to see that Adam and Eve are created good, and obeying God comes naturally. It's part of their nature. They know what God's righteous requirements are, and they live in accordance with them. Sinless life was natural to Adam and Eve in the garden. In this situation, God gives Adam a probationary command that would test whether he would be faithful to God or not. And here, of course, is the command, Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Right? There's this command, and there's consequences should you not perfectly and perpetually keep that command. 
Notice in verse 15 that Adam was given a positive role to play in the garden. He works the fields and he guards the gardens, right? So, you know, we see this is wrapped up in the nature of image of God. He's to be like God. God goes from, you know, the tohu vabohu, the, the uh, formlessness and void. He goes from that world into increasing order, right? There's sun and moon. There's land, there's sea, there's animals to populate it. We see this burgeoning, glorious, growing creation where it goes from less order to more order. Adam is supposed to do that. He's tending, he's keeping the garden. He's practicing animal husbandry, who knows what. But he's also told that he needs to guard the garden, right? To guard the garden. Now, who should he be guarding it from? Well, talking snakes would be a good one, Adam, right? He's to guard the garden from those who would come and malign the word of the creating God, right? Those who would come and say that God has God said, right? That's his job. He needs to come and guard the garden. What should Adam have done? He should have judged Satan and cast him out of the garden. But of course, we know that, you know, we're east of Eden. That's our reality. We're stuck in that rut, right? And now our self-esteem is, well... There's a good reason for it to be often uh, bad, right? We live in a sin-cursed world. We screw our neighbors over. They screw us over. Our parents aren't good to us. We're not good to our kids. It's not a perfect world, right? Well, in the midst of that, after an Eve of Adam and Eve sin, we see cherubim guarding, guarding the Garden of Eden, right? These fire cherubim with a fiery sword. Uh, I always appreciate it. Ian Duggard, he said, Hallmark really needs to upgrade their theology. He says, the cherubim that you see in Hallmark are these chubby Renaissance babies with cute little wings that, you know, totally defy all possibilities of physics because wings that big don't fly 15-pound fat kids. Come on. Uh, but Ian Duggard's point was uh, the, the image that we have of the cherubim, you need to think of the Terminator, you need to think of a fierce, scary being warding off any who would try to gain access to the holy because there's only death there. Genesis 3.24 says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, that's, what is this negative command? Genesis 2.17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. So it's pretty simple. All of Adam's obedience is focused on this one thing. Eat that, die. Don't. Huh, don't, and what happens? Well, I submit to you, don't, and the opposite is true. The death promised, uh, so uh, obedience to God was in the form of this test, which would confirm him as righteous or condemn him as a sinner. The death that was promised to Adam, if he sinned, was not just physical death. Now, of course, we know the text says that Adam and Eve do die later and all of us participate in death, but that's not natural, okay? I think oftentimes when we go to funerals, and especially now we're starting to culturally be like, oh, well, it's just part of the circle of life, right? No, it is foreign. It's not right, right? There should be mourning when we see uh, death. It, it's not natural, right? Uh, we, we do see that certainly physical death does come, but the, the death that Adam experiences immediately is he realizes that he's naked, that there's been a transformation in his perception of his being, right? Things aren't right. Things aren't right. 
eternal spiritual death and hell, of course, is what we're talking about. That's what Adam is experiencing. It's what he's on his path towards after the fall. Think about this. Romans 6, 23 makes it so clear. For the wages of sin is death. Death like kicking the bucket hundreds of years later in Adam's case. Death like realizing you're naked and you're estranged from your creator. That kind of death. And should God not be pleased to provide a redeemer, eternal death in hell. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, of course, I think when we see Romans 6.23, we always think, okay, we're talking heavenly life. Beloved, I want to talk to you about the covenant of life or the covenant of works as referring to that very life, that final end time eternal reality that God invites us to. So, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, is it not implied that if Adam obeyed, he would have merited heaven? That is eternal life. Remember, as we studied Shorter Catechism number one, member number one, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God, reflect his image, and enjoy him forever. And that forever land is talking about that place where we participate in the beatific vision, where we're glorified, where we see God as he is, where we rejoice in his being, where he calls us his children. That's what Shorter Catechism one is talking about. We see that man's goal is glory or eternal life. Heaven or glorification is our goal. Both here, that is Adam's goal. Adam's goal in the covenant of works or the covenant of life is to get here, okay? And that is all of our goal as humanity, right? Both before Adam sins and after, heaven is his goal. Man's goal is true life, life in abundance. Think about Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, when Paul uses all have sinned there, it's a very definite past experience that he's talking about. When Paul says all have sinned, I want you to locate Romans 3.23 right here, right here, right? Right when he falls, right when there's judgment, right when he gets the boot, right when we have the sword-drawn angel creature over here. That's what we're talking about. All have sinned in past, in our father, Adam. It's a definite fall. Adam is our federal head. He's our representative. As the New England Children's Catechism used to say for you history nerds, in Adam we fall all, okay? That's what it's talking about in Romans 3.23. Now, that phrase, all have sinned, that Paul uses in 3.23 is the same phrase that Paul uses in Romans 5.12. In 5.12, Paul uses that in the sense, uh, sorry, Romans 5.12, uh, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, wherever he is, I didn't even draw him, through the one man that's there, uh, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. In 5.12 of Romans, Paul uses that in the sense that all of us sinned in Adam, our covenant representative, our federal head. Now let's go back to 323. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That definite past tense, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we're talking about that final reality. All of us, we're talking glorification glory, okay? 
all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that heavenly goal, which was man's goal in the garden, is unattained, and it becomes unobtainium after the fall for us. But nonetheless, I submit to you that this idea of the covenant of works is still in effect. And if you don't believe that, look at your neighbor. Look at you. We spend our lives trying to show that we're just. We try to out-righteous one another, whether that's a secular righteousness or a religious one. We are so bound up into the idea that I need to prove that I am good. I need to show that I am right. I need to show the world that I'm acceptable, I'm beautiful, I'm glorious, I'm whatever. It's built into the nature of who we are. It's baked into the cake of humanity. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, maybe you're stretching Paul's words here a little bit. Does glory really mean that? Uh, I submit to you, 3.23 and 5.12 of Romans is pointing us towards that eternal glory. But let's just stop here and think about this. If we drop Paul's logic in reverse for a second, if we say, okay, uh, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's drop that in reverse. Paul's saying that all who don't sin attain what? Glory. Okay, well, what's glory? What's glory? What does Paul mean by glory? Turn with me to Romans 8, 17 through 21. 8, 17 through 21. Paul says, And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This concept of glory in Paul's writings is this stuff, okay? We're talking about the kingdom to come, our greatest goal, our greatest hope, right? So, just to recap, calling this arrangement in the garden a covenant, I think, is absolutely biblical. And calling it a covenant of life is absolutely biblical. If someone can lay hold of this reality, which is promised and foreshadowed in the garden through various means, tree of life, etc., um, and of course, Romans 5 is going to seal the deal for this argument. Um, if someone can lay hold of that, that is... The, the greatest thing. Well, it is life indeed, life indeed that is promised. The catechism is not wrong in calling what the relationship here is between God and Adam, this covenant, a covenant of life. It is promising life. Now, thus far we've seen that God calls this relationship with Adam and Eve in the garden a covenant, even a covenant of life, and I believe it's biblically warranted. But how about calling it a covenant of works? And we got to be clear here, as Protestants, we get triggered when you talk about salvation by works. We do, right? How are you going to earn the glory of God? Now, beloved, keep in mind, I would hope, uh, and this 
the reason why I'm beating on this so much is because it's not always true. But I would hope that it's true of you that when you talk about being uncomfortable with this idea of being justified by your works, you're talking about this time and period. From the time when Adam and Eve fall until the second coming, nobody gets in by works except this guy, right? Nobody gets, yes. Romans 3.23 and 5.12, there it is. The issue, and then 5.13 talks about all that stuff where there's, when there's not a, there's no law, there's no transgression of the law, but nonetheless you're condemned, right? Romans 5.13 seals the deal. 5.13 is no, in Adam, our federal head, humanity has fallen, right? Humanity has fallen. Adam is our federal head. Okay, um, now, of course, what I'm trying to encourage you to see today is it was totally possible for Adam to be justified by his works. But once we get here, yeah, you're off your rails and you need, you need to, to fix that because a, a totally gracious God actually provides everything that we need for our salvation. Okay. So as Protestants, uh, we have... We're rightfully cautious about the possibility of get, getting to heaven, uh, getting to heavenly glory through our works. Even our Catholic friends, of course, they are, you absolutely need grace to get to heaven. Now, works are required as part of, you know, ultimate justification, and, and they get into all that stuff, which we're not going to hit too much today. But I just want you to get the idea. As Protestants, we've rightfully been really cautious about talking about works in relation to salvation. And it's, it makes sense if we're talking about our period in redemptive history. I submit to you it makes zero sense if we're talking about the garden. Zero sense. There's no reason to talk. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me back up there. Grace is necessary here, and that's what Protestants are traditionally in favor of, and we get uncomfortable about works. We don't need any discomfort about works here because what we talked about in Shorter Catechism 10. Man is genuinely good. There's nothing lacking in his being. It's not because, uh, you know, he's not God. It's not because he didn't have enough grace to pump him full of obedience, right? The, the issue is, of course, this truly is a covenant of works. Adam could have obeyed, and that's what we're looking at here. We need to be sensitive to how Scripture unfolds. We need to be good student, students of covenant theology, right? The question isn't how do people get to heaven— but the question needs to be, how was Adam to get to heaven, okay? There's nothing stated in Genesis except the possibility of Adam's obedience or disobedience. The Catechism contends that depending on what Adam did, he would merit heaven or hell by his works. All of Adam's obedience is tested at this one simple command of not eating the fruit of the tree of good and evil. If Adam eats, he dies, and of course, historically, we see that's the case. If he doesn't eat, he lives. Later in Israel, we see this, this principle, this works principle, in reference to the theocracy. You know, this is a classic proof text for the covenant of works. Uh, Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Do this and live. That is the principle of the covenant of works. There's no grace. Now, we won't, don't have time to talk about the, you know, mosaic economy, but it is a, a gracious economy where individuals are saved by grace through the one covenant of grace. 
But of course, for the land promise and showing what the kingdom is like, that is, that, that is dependent on their works. Someday we'll get into that, perhaps. But in terms of how people become saved today, it's only one means through the Redeemer of God's elect, the Lord Jesus. But let's figure out what the Lord Jesus has to do before we can rejoice in him. Well, the fascinating thing about rejoicing in the Lord Jesus is your knowledge of the faith can be as small as a mustard seed, but it also grows in your appreciation to, to know what your great Savior has done for you. All of Adam's obedience, of course, is tested at this. Think about Adam as the, the image of God. He's to image God. He's to do what God did. He's to think and act like God. Think about this. What does God do in the creation week? We mentioned it earlier. He goes from less order to increasing order. God works six days, and he enters into the seventh day, his rest. Now, if you look at the Genesis account and you look at the way in which the time stamps are all written, morning and evening, the first day, morning and evening, it goes through that through the creation week, and it does that for six days, morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening. I stopped counting. We get to the seventh day. It just says God enters his rest. Okay, Beloved, I would submit to you when we look at uh, this seventh day rest that God enters into, it's the eternal realm right? So God works and he rests. That pattern is Adam's pattern. Adam is to work by being obedient to the covenant of works, to not violate that one stipulation that God provides upon him, to rejoice in guarding the garden, keeping Satan away from it, not believing those who malign God's word, going ahead and laboring in the field, etc. That's what Adam's supposed to do and then enter into heaven, right? So Adam, as the image of God, if we take the verbal aspect of the image of God seriously, we know Adam has to work to get to heaven. So it would be natural for Adam, as the image of God, to work and enter his rest. And we've seen this in previous studies where I go out of the way to, to make that point. Like God, Adam was to follow the same pattern. Now, some people have suggested, hey, look at Luke 17. And let's go there really quick. Luke 17, 7 through 10. Some people have suggested that this idea of Adam getting to heaven by his works is unbiblical. Okay? And, uh, you know, as Protestants, we do easily get triggered when we talk about getting to heaven and works. Uh, but I submit again, don't get uncomfortable when we talk about Adam. Luke 17, 7 through 10. Jesus is telling a parable. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him who has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Now, those who argue in this line, and there's some popular theologians, uh, you know, Daniel Fuller of Fuller Seminary, he was a big fan of this argument. One of his chief disciples, John Piper, which lots of us know him and think he's a great guy, they, they make this argument. And John Piper makes this argument like, hey, there's no way to earn heaven, even for Adam, okay? And so the rationale is like this. Um, I'm not going to read any quotes because I don't have time. If you want to read some Piper quotes, I'll give you some later. Um, they argue this. This distinction between the creature and the creator is so big, so vast, 
right? That man can't possibly earn anything from God, and so heaven, which is absolutely glorious, must be given by grace even to sinless Adam. Because heaven's so glorious, so great, and so good, it has to be a gift. How can the uh, finite inherit the infinite, right? Now, of course, they're on to something if they're talking about sinful humanity. If we're talking here, of course, after the fall, yeah, they're on to something. Absolutely. Amen, brother. But who is Jesus talking to? Who is Jesus talking to in this passage? Jesus is talking to self-satisfied Pharisees, disciples who are posturing for places in the kingdom, and he's talking to people who imagine, I'm okay, you're okay. These are the people that need to have the air let out of their tires because we as sinners can't merit the kingdom of God. For those who have bloated sense of self-esteem and think, oh, God, we're good. I'm better than my neighbor. He's a bit of a jerk. I'm better than him. I must be good. Jesus says, I'm going to let the air out of your tires, son, because you ain't making it. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not commenting on a pre-fall Adam being able to merit heaven per the terms of the covenant of grace, which God provides, the terms God provides. Now, of course, in terms of how Jesus acts in terms of servanthood, keep in mind, it's Jesus who washes the disciples' feet. It's Jesus who serves at the table. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now, notice those who want to argue and read that Luke 17, uh, read Luke 17 into the garden. And so here's, here's a, a good warning, Luke 17. Don't read that into the garden, okay? It's not helpful. It's not. Those who want to read Luke 17 into the garden are saying that the natural cannot obtain the supernatural. It takes us right back to the era of Rome. Adam, of course, would have had to have had supernatural grace to fully form his nature in obedience. Yet if Adam could not attain heaven by himself before the fall, what does this say when we start thinking about Jesus? Jesus is presented by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5 as the second Adam, okay? All of the stuff of the covenant of works that we see in Eden here comes to bear upon the Son of Man in his public life and ministry. When he enters his public life, what does he do? He goes out in the garden for 40 days. He meets Satan. You go look at Luke 4, Mark 4, and unpack the parallels between which uh, you see Jesus in, the gar um, Jesus in the wilderness and Adam in the garden, right? Scripture is very clear. Jesus has come to pick up Adam's unpaid bills and yours, okay? Jesus has come to be faithful to the covenant of works. Sorry, trying to skip some pages. Um, yeah. Romans 5, uh, let's get into uh, So. If Adam can't earn Jesus, uh, if Adam can't earn heaven, can Jesus, right? Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, I would submit to you, it's not because Jesus has deity gas in his tank that he becomes, you know, the second Adam, right? What's the difference between Jesus and Adam? Was it Jesus' divinity that won him heaven, or was it his obedience, is the problem with humanity really that we aren't God? I would submit to you, no. Romans 5.14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one to come. Scripture in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, they are tying Adam and Jesus together as two federal heads, right? And you look at Romans, 
Uh, whoopsie, too many legs. Um, the no arms. Anyhow, uh, when we look at Romans, we see that hey, in this one man all die. In this one man, many will be made alive, right? These are our federal representatives. And so if you go saying, well, he couldn't possibly earn heaven for me on the basis of his works, what does that do to the analogy Paul's saying? Maybe he can't earn heaven for you on the basis of his works. And what does that leave for you? That leaves for you some works, right? Possibly. It leaves for you something, or maybe faith and works, or uh, covenant faithfulness, or those kinds of fascinating terms. All right. Uh, yeah. So, by covenant, God decided to give heaven to Adam if he obeyed. If Adam eats, he dies. If he does not eat, he lives. Later in Israel, there's a similar works principle which applies to life in the land that we've seen earlier, do this and live. So because of that, traditionally in the Protestant camp, we've called this the covenant of works. Now some of you might be saying, what's the big deal? Are you just splitting hairs? We all love Jesus, right? And let's be honest, uh, some of the brothers that I've mentioned are probably more faithful at loving the Lord Jesus than I ever will be, okay? But here's something I want you to ponder. Uh, as Presbyterians, especially today, we're going to be laying hands, I assume, on some brothers in the future. There's some people that are, there's going to be an election for deacons and elders. And if you're being nominated and elected and ordained as a deacon or an elder, you're making a promise. And the promise is that you will uphold, sorry, uh, the purity and peace of the church, but that you uh, subscribe to the Westminster Standards, right? That you with a good, clear conscience are saying, I believe this is what the Bible teaches because I've put some time into it and I've studied these issues. I would encourage you when you ponder your Christian life and you read books and ponder people, is it the best thing to be making heroes out of people that we would not lay hands on, okay? That we would not be able to ordain. It's not saying guys like John Piper don't have good material, but there's no way there's a PCA congregation in, well, at least I would hope, uh, PCA Presbytery in the U.S. That would, that would ordain the brother, okay? And I believe him to be a, a Christian brother and a wonderful man, okay? Other people, you know, in, in my own tradition, you know, we had a guy named Norman Shepard who was a great teacher of God's word, uh, very passionate, loved by everybody, but he started fudging right here. Ooh, let's get even worse, right? John Murray, one of my favorite people. I, I came into the Reformed camp. John Murray, imputation of Adam's sin. His unpacking of Romans 5 is some of his best work in my view. John Murray's very uncomfortable with this language, covenant of works. John Murray wants to say it's an Adamic administration. They don't use the language covenant there. Let's just chuck that, right? John Murray has two students, right? He's got... Uh, uh, like his two-star students, probably Robert Strimple and uh, Norman Shepard. Norman Shepard chucks this entirely. Norman Shepard ends up with a view closer to Rome, okay? So these are important things. They're important for when we call people to serve in the church. Do you get the gospel? Do you understand that what Jesus is doing is picking up Adam's unpaid bar tab and paying for it and partying excessively with him in the everlasting kingdom? Adam didn't have a bar tab, you get the point. He also didn't have air that he gets let out of tires, but I'm, I'm trying to be trying to be hip. Okay, um, so here's a, a couple quotes before we leave. Uh, I don't know who came up with this. Uh, it might be Bob Godfrey, I don't know. Someone said this, if you deny the covenant of works in the front door, that is in the garden, 
you end up smuggling in at the back door, right? If you deny the covenant of works here, you're going to go ahead and have a covenant of works, not for Jesus, but for you, right? You're always going to have a Jesus plus gospel if you end up denying the, gospel, uh, the covenant of works in the garden. Yeah. Uh, here's a quote um, from Professor Klein. Uh, it's from an article called Covenant Theology Under Attack. Uh, I'll just read this and we'll close. If the first Adam could not earn anything, neither could the second. But if the obedience of Jesus has no meritorious value, the foundation of the gospel is gone. If Jesus' passive obedience has no merit, there has been no satisfaction made for our sins. Passive obedience means Jesus dying on the cross. He passively dies. If Jesus' passive obedience has no merit, there's been no satisfaction made for our sins. If Jesus' active obedience, that is his 33 years of life, especially his time in the garden being tempted by Satan, if Jesus' active obedience has no merit, there's no righteous accomplishment to be imputed to us. There's then no justification-glorification for us to receive as a gift of grace by faith alone. Now, when we get to the covenant of grace, we'll see that it's essentially Christ personally, perfectly, and perpetually keeping the terms of the covenant of works for us so that we can give, so that he can give us his obedience as a gift and take our punishment in his being. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for a savior. Um, how we give thanks, Lord, that uh, all that you command, you provide for. And you've provided for our redemption, for our atonement through Jesus Christ. And that, Father, by faith in him, uh, we know that heaven is our home, that you're our father. But we have also know, Father, that you have called us unto good works, that we might love our neighbor as ourselves, and that we might seek to show what the kingdom is like by our words and by our works. Enable us in that effort, we pray this day in Jesus' name. Amen.